I'm Rachel Johnson, co-host of the Educals Podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another great episode of My EdTech Life. Thank you all so much for joining us on this wonderful morning, or it could be evening, or it could be Sunday, depending on where you are in the world. Thank you, as always, from the bottom of my heart for making Maya Tech Life what it is today. I really appreciate all the likes, shares, follows, and listens. And again, our mission and vision is to connect educators and creators one show at a time. And I am just really excited about today's show as you know, you know, at least I wasn't during like Christmas break and so on. And, you know, a couple months back, chat GPT has been the buzzword. Everybody's talking about AI tools. Everybody's getting into, you know, creating AI tools and creating with AI, but also with a lot of the creativity and the amplification of creativity. There's been a lot of questions. There's been a lot of fear. And me being in the education community, there's been a lot of educators that, you know, can go back and forth as far as seeing the upside of ChatGPT. Some people see the downside of ChatGPT, and especially in higher ed space. I've had those conversations with my current professors as well, as far as writing and especially being in doctoral studies. They've kind of laid out some groundwork for us too as well. But I am excited because today I've got an amazing guest. I have Dr. James Breyer here today, and I'm really excited because I was able to connect with him uh, just through social media, see a lot of the great stuff that he puts out on YouTube. He's got an amazing newsletter that he, uh, you know, rolls out with some amazing information. So I'm hoping that today, friends, all of you in my education space, all of you in my creator space are listening today and tuning in. And you'll definitely collect, excuse me, connect with Dr. James. So, James, how are you doing this morning? I, I, I'm I'm doing awesome, and, and you know, forgive me for sounding a little selfish uh, and egotistical. I looked in in the the webcam feed here, and I'm so tired. And you could tell them my eyes. But here's why, though, it's a compliment to you. I have been looking forward to this interview all week. And honestly, I actually had a hard time sleeping last night because I kept trying to think in my head, like, okay, what do, what do I want to talk about? What, what do you, where, where will this conversation go? I was actually really excited. I got up at, at five o'clock. No, I'm sorry, four o'clock, four o'clock. I had, uh, I had my alarm set for five, but I woke up that early. So I've been down in some coffee. I've been looking forward to this. So Thank you. <laughs> yes, no, absolutely. So have I. Like, I love the energy that you bring. And most importantly, I love the way that you present the content because obviously there's so much that is out there that as educators, we have to filter through. And of course, you see some people that are very aggressively speaking against AI and AI tools. And this is the downfall of education. And now, you know, we're going to be losing jobs and so on. But then you see people that are like, hey, you know what? This could be more of a collaborative tool, enhance the learning, enhance the learning experience for teachers, save some time for teachers. So I've seen both ways and just trying to remain very objective and listening to both sides. But today I'm really excited about today's conversation. So before we get started and get into the meat of things, if you can please give us a brief introduction and your context in the education space. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, so my career actually launched as a special education teacher. Um, I, I worked in the inner city school at Kansas City, Kansas, and that was my foundation. That's where I started to realize that our educational pathways for students, there is no one size fits all. I, I used to use the mantra back then that um, the public school, or I'm sorry, the traditional public system is not best fit for every student. And I also used to say, and not every student is the best fit for the traditional model. And people would kind of say, what do you mean? But what do you mean? And it, I just, it was so hard to explain. I just knew that in an urban school district, special education, middle school resource room, I was constantly differentiating and individualizing and coming up with creative context for it to mean something to a student. And I started to pick up early on that don't get me wrong, objectives are very important and yeah. we want to have certain outcomes, but it was what it means to each student. And so I ended up uh, down a trajectory then into administration. I wanted I wanted a sphere of influence that could craft more to help the system 
than perhaps what I knew I could do as a classroom teacher. And then I was very fortunate after uh, assuming an assistant principal role in the North Kansas City School District on the Missouri uh, side, uh, I was very fortunate. I was able to launch a public virtual school here in the state of Iowa, where I'm at now still. And we served uh, students in grades K through 12, and it was a public-private partnership. Uh, I was a part of a school district of about 450 students, and the education management organization, which was Connections Education slash Pearson Virtual Schools, uh, they were the private end of it. So it was a public-private partnership. We ended up growing our student enrollment to almost 1,000 students, which was huge for a school in the state of Iowa. And I did feel as if, same thing, that was helping craft individualized pathways for students, plus weaving in technology. So this was my jam. This is my wheelhouse. And then just this past year, uh, 2022, I realized after 10 years that maybe I hit what I, maybe maybe I peaked. Maybe I hit what I knew I could offer a learning organization. And I just felt it was the right time to, to pass the baton to, to a new direction. I wasn't sure where I was going to go. I didn't know what my plan was, and I might speak to that later, but uh, higher education is actually where I ended up now. And uh, I work at Avila University as a director of graduate studies for our School of Education. I'm also an instructor, uh, working my way up the professor rank. Uh, and on my side piece, you can kind of say, which I'm fortunate to do in higher ed, um, I then focus on kind of a, building a digital community for like-minded teachers in your space, the ed tech space. And innovation, innovative ways to, to bring about education, because it, it's a full circle piece for me. There is not one pathway for all students. And I want to be a part of that movement and do anything I can to add it and contribute, but learn from these experts all around us. Absolutely. You know, and that's one thing. And and speaking for myself, you know, getting into this academic space, you know, doing my master's and now working on my doctoral studies, you know, there's so much expertise, at, but yet sometimes a lot of that doesn't come back into our classrooms in the K-12 space. To have. So to have somebody with your experience moving up from the K-12 space, bringing that into higher ed, and then bringing that back is something that is really exciting. So I'm really thankful for that. And, you know, sometimes things work out for the best. And, you know, today we get to meet and get to talk about this and something that excites us both, which is not as the, the ed tech space, but of course, AI yeah. and the possibilities yeah. of artificial intelligence. So before, you know, we get into it a little bit deeper and some specific work that you're doing, I definitely want you to share. I saw this amazing YouTube video that you created that we'll get into that. But first of all, I want to get your, the from your perspective and your lens, uh, what you saw in the education space when ChatGPT was released, what were some of the, you know, I guess the, the pain points for teachers, what were some of the good things, and then, of course, your own uh, perception of it. So what's interesting, and for the for all of our viewers, um, Fonz and I had a chance right before to, to speak about how we have been using a handful of different what are called generative AI tools. And, and what this means basically are uh, artificial intelligence uh, tools that basically create content or, or create newer content uh, through their tech, through, through their operability. And so ChatGPT is, is exactly specifically what we're going to kind of talk about here. But we've been using various tools in the space for quite some time. And my mind was blown wide open about a year, year and a half ago when I realized, wow, the technology has come so far. Where is this going to take our field? And it excited me. It scared me. And I was just waiting for the time that the the masses uh, would start to become aware. And I, to be very truthful, and I was following the space quite a bit, I didn't even recognize that OpenAI uh, had had launched ChatGPT to the public until my dean had shared an email. And I, I remember reading like, ChatGPT, what is that? And I looked at so I was behind the, the ball. But uh, what I definitely saw very quickly is what I probably should have anticipated it was kind of a shock and awe, which then very quickly turned into a fear or a defensiveness, um, definitely kind of a reticence uh, to, to want to use these types of tools. And it's interesting because I just watched a, a, an interview with Sam Altman, who's the, the CEO of, of OpenAI, and he spoke about how the reason he basically released ChatGPT when he did is... He knows that the, the the true power and magnitude of these generative AI tools that are out there 
will absolutely shock the system if they're all released all at once. And he felt that he had an obligation to kind of trickle it out. And ChatGPT was the first, the, the first movement. I don't think anybody in I don't think anybody expected five million people <laughs> within that first week were going to register and sign up. And 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 I think it just created it. I don't want to say a hysteria, but it created such a buzz that sometimes that's actually a bad thing when you think about mm -hmm. it. It, it when, when so much attention is brought to something, it leaves people with like a hmm, this seems too good to be true. And so that got the the fight or flight sensation for some. Uh, and then of course, in our education space, the immediate ramification turned into, oh my gosh, what are my students going to do? And I'm going to go even a little bit deeper, I think for educators, and I can speak for myself. I can't speak for every educator. If your experience was like mine, I empathize with you. I went through and experienced a mode of cognitive dissonance back in April because I thought, why am I doing this? This actually doesn't make sense. If I can literally type a question into a tool I use at that time, Jasper, and it's going to crank out a list of things that's kind of like a, a souped up search engine. So now I can go to all of these u.com. I can go into Elicit, which is more of like a literature review, um, artificially intelligent driven platform. I can use ChatGPT. I can use Runway ML to create video. I can put text to image using DALI or Midjourney. All these various tools that are out there. And I started to realize, what am I bringing to the table? <laughs> And even I started to question, like, am I going to be replaced? And I felt confident enough that the answer would be no, but I knew that our field was going to, to, to really be impacted. And I, I, yeah, I think, I think that's part of the reason why I shifted into a different career trajectory. All of a sudden I, I experienced that and I'm seeing so many of our colleagues around the world battling that same piece right now. Yeah. And let me just say before I pass right back to you, Fonz, you know, it. I think we have to normalize that. We have to accept that. This fear is absolutely acceptable. The unknown, it is kind of scary. This, this is a, this is truly a human transformational technology that's impacting every industry. This isn't some shiny whistle. Oh, he, you know, here's a computer. And now this is how we can learn online. This is this is absolutely affecting positively, negatively, every industry around the world. So we do have reason to be questioning, a little worried, a little scared, reserved, optimistic, all these emotions. And we need to let people express those emotions. We have to. Yeah, absolutely. And I agree with you. I mean, there's just been so much buzz. And then, of course, I'm, I'm here in the Twitter space and then, of course, on TikTok and just seeing so many people that just adopt it right from the get go. And they're just those early go getters and just trying things out. And of course, like myself, as you know, I just love to max out as much as I can on anything to see how much further you can push it to the limits and start learning the tech and then of course you've got other teachers that are fearful because obviously they see it's like okay you know they're just going to type in and they're going to get their essay and then that's it and it's done but you know it's funny because a couple of episodes back uh, i did a show also talking about you know ai and we we're talking about the you know the tech and i was saying you know in my day and i'm really dating myself you know back in elementary we had to do research papers. And so my chat GPT at the time was getting dropped off at the library, <laughs> opening up the Encyclopedia Britannica and writing my research paper on spiders. And to some people, it's like, oh my gosh, all these books with all this information, like, you know, how are people going to learn if everything is all together? And then of course you've got the internet and the interwebs coming in and it's like, oh, Google, like now you can search everything and you can find everything on Google. And, you know, so I see that and then I see, you know, chat GPT and I see like, wow, you know, it, this is pretty much really a fancy Google search, like where I don't have to go through all those tabs and mm -hmm. go through all those ads and then I can go ahead and find some information. But you're still going to have to learn also to be able to sift through that information. You're going to learn how you're going to have to cite, you're going to have to make sure you find your sources. So there's still a lot of that connection within the curriculum that we would normally see within the education system. But again, I'm completely, you know, on board with you as far as that fear from teachers, that initial shock and awe, the way that you described it. And then after that, you know, some of them start seeing the potential. 
And like I was talking to you earlier, you know, in the pre-chat, you know, there's a lot of teachers that I have spoken to and I kind of let them know. I said, do you realize that some of the platforms that we use in our education space that we have adopted in our district for math, science, and, and all the rest of our curriculum offer some sort of AI or algorithm that when the student takes a pretest or a pre-quiz, it'll automatically set them on a learning path. And mm -hmm. as they continue to be successful in that learning path, it'll build them up or it'll find a way to close some gaps if the student is not quite there. And they're like, that at that instant, it kind of hits them. It's like, oh, oh. And then they kind of just start kind of feeling a little bit more at ease and comfortable and so on. But uh, yeah, so that's been my experience too uh, within my district and then with uh, my friends and set of teachers and also did a show where I interviewed ChatGPT and that was a fun interview, being able to get all that done together and putting in those questions. And we'll talk a little bit about that too as well because one of the things that I wanna highlight today in our conversation is the work that you've done in putting together this amazing uh, YouTube video. So I want you to tell us a little bit about that because uh, I am going to be sharing it in the chat. Oh, and okay. so it's uh, the AI standards for student learning. So talk to me a little bit about where you got that idea from. So it, it looking back, which feels like it was a, an eternity, it was probably a month ago. Um, as I was sifting through the various social media channels and different platforms I'm a member of, that's where I was recognizing that there was such a backlash that my fear was going to be that the easy answer and response would be a very reactionary one. Shut it down, ban it. And I, I don't I don't see that as the answer at all. Um, this is to, to use to, to, to use the expression I keep hearing, you know, you cannot put this genie back in the bottle. And it's true. These mm -hmm. technologies, so many of them are open source now, too. And built on on the gpt3 gpt 3.5 uh, uh transformers these are not going away so we really have to learn to lean into and learn how to utilize and integrate these tools but how do we do this and so naturally kind of the academic side of me i, I wanted to see what already exists and uh, but even before i went there admittedly i went to chat gpt and jasper and i said uh what do you recommend are the proper uses for ChatGPT? Because I actually wanted to find out what does ChatGPT specifically state about itself when it comes to plagiarism or academic dishonesty. And at that time, they were putting in even a little disclaimer yeah. that uh, you know take take the information uh, carefully, you know source your facts, and then just understand that this could be plagiarism. And I think that was in response to some of that backlash at the time. So then I started asking some questions about how would you recommend these be used effectively by students? And it generated a list. I thought these are actually pretty good. So then I got into the first ethical piece, which was, well, do I use this? Do I just copy and paste this and say like, oh, wow, hey, I came up with this idea. Well, I didn't. ChatGPT did. So then the researcher side of me said, what exi What currently exists? What, what, uh, what frameworks may actually be there? And I didn't do this in an exhaustive way, but I used a tool called Elicit, which, as I mentioned earlier, is a, it's an AI tool that can, in essence, uh, scrape all of the open source research studies to customize to your topic. So it's like a, it really is like a search engine, but with a souped-up AI-powered uh, algorithm to give you what you, what it is you need. So I started looking at framework, and I did kind of a little brief mini literature review and recognized there are plenty of frameworks that will get toward how to use AI, how to develop AI, how to create AI. And then I went a little bit further, ISTE, uh, International Society for Technical Education, Technology and Education, ISTE, we know it is ISTE. Um, they do have a pretty decent, um, uh, nice AI in education part of their website. And they also have a framework that shows how teachers can embed particular activities aligned to their, their standards that uh, kind of look at AI as, as a whole. But it's still, I was not, I found a gap in the literature that suggested how can teachers use AI in their writing assignments with students. So from there, that's where I started to just take what was already there. I kind of did a little mini thematic analysis to say, all right, here's what I'm finding. Ethics and accountability. Uh, actually, I am looking at the list here. Accessibility 
um, human-centered, keep, keeping the keeping the student at the middle, um, the purposeful use or, or use it in a purposeful and a creative way. Um, and then quality control is very important. How is the output being generated? Is it effective? Is it proper? If it's not, some guiding principles to help teachers know which tools ought we use. And then the last piece was professional development and training. And what I wanted to do with these standards, I, I, by the way, I should openly disclose, I'm a type of person I really don't, I don't like, I don't like so much top-down restriction. So I didn't intend these to be in a way to say, here's how you're supposed to and only use them. It was just more of, since you and I have been in the generative AI space for enough time, we know that there are many tools out there. Futurepedia, if you have a chance, anybody in this uh, stream, Futurepedia has an awesome array. It's like a, a repository of all these different type of AI tools in text, image, uh, video editing, uh, writing, uh, social engine, personal assistant, all these various ways you can find these awesome tools. I knew that it is not just chat GPT that's going to be here forever. And it's only that, but all educators seem to be putting their emphasis on chat GPT. So I knew that we needed standards to help put people at ease, help direct how maybe we can use these tools, but that could be applied, almost be agnostic to any generative AI tool moving forward. And I also knew too, in a very protective way, I haven't spoken like this openly too much, but in a protective way for our field, if there was a sense of urgency for why we need a set of standards like this, it isn't just so that students use these tools appropriately. We will be left behind. And we will be left behind as practitioners from a technological standpoint, but we are going to be left behind in a practical sense. Because as more and more and more of these tools are rolled out, the narrative of how they will be used, should be used, could be used, will leave every educator and student behind because they're not going to build and develop these tools for our use in a classroom or in a virtual learning space. It's going to be for their reasoning of building that platform and tool. We will not be a part of the conversation any, any further. I'm worried about that. I feel that as educators, we know the learning sciences. We know pedagogy. We know how to teach, how to learn, how to assess for learning and understanding. We know in our learning engagement and all of the social emotional learning and relationships, all these pieces that we know is what is part of the full education system, but we will be left behind. And my hope for the a set of standards like this was to at least to start a conversation and give administrators at a district level, building level, professors working within their departments to say, we're not building policies to ban this. Let's build policies to lean into this because we have to, we have to lead this conversation or be part of it. We cannot allow ourselves to not be part of it. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree that we do need that voice. I mean, K-12 space, higher ed space, one of the things that you mentioned and that I love that I would like to, for you to just talk a little bit more as far as what you see is this, but you were mentioning, you know, instead of running away from the tools, just really leaning into it and see how you can leverage them accordingly. Now, I myself as a, a you know, practitioner and, you know, seeing a lot of these tools for myself, it's just really about time, saving time. And I still have my lesson. I know what I'm going to do. I know what I want to present. But when I see a platform like CurioPod where I can type in and say, okay, I'm doing a lesson on, you know, to... I don't know, two, two variable or what is it? Two factor, uh, whatever linear equations or something like that. If I type that in, it's going to give me kind of like a little standard set of slides that I can go in and edit piece together. And I'm already saving that time where I don't have to go and construct everything all together for my math lesson, for my science lesson. And then I've always been of the, the mentality of if I can give teachers back some time whether whether it's a platform that we currently use, something that can even give them 10 minutes back at the end of the day to just sit there with their lights off and just decompress or just have enough time to grab some lunch or, you know, even use the restroom. Heaven That's my forbid, mentality. right? Heaven yes, forbid. I'm like, if I can give you back some time to do those things, then that is a win. And a lot of these tools will be able to do that. However, like you said, it's very important that we do have those conversations on how to use them properly. So my kind of question to you, kind of leading into that, what are some ways that you see that somebody like myself in my space, where I work with teachers and train teachers, 
what can I do and what can we do collectively to help teachers really see the opportunity that they have with these tools and not see it as an enemy, but rather see it as something that can, again, enhance the learning, give them their time back, and then where the students can focus more on the learning rather than, you know, getting just the little, you know, I guess, tip of the iceberg of the lesson and not being able to go as deep. So I, I kind of, when I think of the question, I think of this in two different ways. One is a theoretical and then one is definitely like, okay, just enough of the theory. Give me, give me, give me what to do here. But the theoretical piece also, I think is what this is going to now allow us as educators to begin to embrace and understand. And what I hope gets weaved into professional development and professional learning activities moving forward and definitely the higher ed, how we do teacher preparation programming. And it's the idea that we really do have to begin to adopt learning theories for the digital age. The one that comes to my mind right away, this surfaced about 2004, 2005, and it's uh, connectivism. And in essence, what it's getting at is that we learn through how we connect with bits of information, or they call it a node. That node of your node, technically. And if you have a website, the website is a node. And if you have a social media platform, that's a node. And then a library can be a node. And this website is a node. And what happens is we actually learn not, of course, by just sitting in a classroom, virtual or physical. We learn by, we retrieve information and access information from that node. We process it. We figure out what does this mean to us? And then we probably do something with it. So maybe I write it down somewhere. Or I put it in a tweet. I just created a node because I took what was information here, I made meaning of it, and I just kind of presented it in a new way. So I now have a new node of information out there. Maybe I blog about it. That's a new node. Uh, maybe I speak about it in a podcast. That's a node. So what ends up happening is all these nodes of information are out there. And really, it's because we are creating meaning as we learn these pieces. And they're all an interconnected uh, weave. And I probably did all hatchet job here on, on connectivism, but that that's, how, in my opinion, the best way to kind of lay it out. And so if we look at that as one example of how we now learn in the digital age, the question I have for educators, not in a way for us to be defensive, but so we can build for the future, is that what we're doing? And of course, we know that in most cases, no, it's not. The systems are set up to where students are attending a, a physical environment, set schedules, 50 minutes. You know, all these conditions of how we say people learn have been imposed on us as teachers and them as, as learners. And that's not even how folks learn in the digital age. So I'm hoping that what we can do, this is, I'll end the theoretical piece here. I'm hoping what we could do is start to recognize we learn differently than how schools were set up in the mid and early 1900s so that we can start to move toward the digital age way of learning. And that that's yet to be seen. Now the practical, all right, fine. That's great. Sounds wonderful. Pie in the sky. What do I do now? I, I think what we can do as educators then is, as I mentioned, lean into the tools then to start to see and do baby steps. I think it's okay for us to be able to say this one tool, ChatGPT, is using what they call an LLM. It's a large language model comprised of millions and billions of data sets. So very similar to what I was just saying, in essence, it's a combination of all these bits and pieces of data, but it's all been put together into one simple output that it creates for you. So this would be a great opportunity for us as teachers and students learning together to explore what does this say about the meaning? And even from a critical sense, I think it's very fair for us as teachers to start telling students, remember, the textbook we have physically or the textbook digital, that was created by a publishing company. The publishing company chose how they were going to put the information in their area. Maybe they had a reason to put that information the way they presented it. So now here's ChatGPT. This is a combination of all these nodes of information. What do you think? What do you see? Do you Does this sound right? And maybe start to teach students how to put in a new way of that question or the prompt and see what that new meaning is. Does anything contradict? Is anything accurate? What we can start to do by this is in a very meaningful way, we could present information to students while building a digital literacy skill that they are absolutely, every one of us is going to need this, which is going to be, can we discern authentic 
versus synthetic information. Can we even tell what's human or what's AI? That to me is probably the bigger life skill above everything that we're going to be learning in schools so we can even function and be a, a educated, informed citizenry as we move forward. Um, and the sad part, the truth serum for us is we're finding out CNET, BuzzFeed, um, AP, oh, I don't want to be libelous here. I thought it may be, uh, AP, there was a larger news agency that openly admitted, yeah, they've been doing and cranking out AP or I'm sorry, AI generated stories. And we, this technologies from a visual sense have been out there since the early 2000s. This is a brave new world. I don't mean to be an alarmist here or doomsdayist, but like, this is a brand new world. And our job, I believe as educators, this is why I keep going on this. We cannot shy away from these tools. We have an obligation to teach content as in our subject areas while helping develop these skills of digital literacy because we won't as teachers even know anymore what's what. We need our students to learn and try to discern. And I'll end on this one last piece. We also, from a practical sense, have to say like, it's okay actually for me to not be expected to know all the answers. I don't need to. I really don't need to. And and your show, I don't mean to be direct with any listener, but as a teacher, you're put, you're actually being unfair to yourself. You're putting too much pressure on yourself to believe that your students should expect you to be the arbiter, the mediator of information. Instead, I don't think we should be insulted when we say like, no, we're facilitators of info. I'm a broker of information. I don't know all the answers. I don't want to know all the answers. That's a lot to shoulder. You know what I can do though? I can bridge you to these various pieces. And I'm going to learn with you. And, and I'm going to, wow, this is surprising. And I want our students to see that as teachers, this is not just some top down, we know all, you know nothing. <laughs> Sorry, Fonz, I get so excited about these no. topics here. I'm teaching a deeper learning class right now at the ED624 Deeper Learning to, to current teachers getting a master's curriculum instruction. The overarching question that I've used is, if students can access everything through Google, and then I had to throw in ChatGPT, if they can access everything through Google and ChatGPT, why do we teach anything? That's a fair question. And everybody's going to have their own answer. And I think that question is what will guide us moving forward. Why are we teaching anything? Well, you know what the answers are yourself. And that's what needs to come out and shine in a sense. You're connecting them to information. You're helping them do something with the information. You don't need to be the one that teaches them all the information because you don't know it all. And it's okay to admit that. And if we've leaned into that realization and then convey that to our students and we help them learn to do stuff now with all this magnitude of information around us, I think it will better prepare all of us. That's a, these are long-winded answers, but I just I I get so excited about these no, topics I, here. <laughs> and I agree with you on everything that you said, you know, because for myself, you know, coming in from marketing, you know, I didn't go into education knowing I wanted to be an educator. I went to business school and then I became an educator and I absolutely fell in love with it. And for me, those that skill set for marketing and sales is what really has helped me be very successful educator. But also what you mentioned is that I came in with the attitude of, I don't know everything and that's okay. And I was learning from my students. And really that's where I honed in those skills working in a, in elementary for 11 years, you know, as a classroom teacher doing fifth grade and sixth grade, I did do some high school, but really getting to know my students and knowing their way of thinking and really seeing their thought process really helped me say, hey, you know what, I can connect them to these, like you said, give them those bits of information, but they don't all learn the same way, but yeah. I'm learning from them along, you know, along the way. So I'm able to share that information that I that I learned from those students and point them in those directions. You mentioned YouTube as well. I go to YouTube all the time. Like I don't search on anything because I want to know something is done. I go to YouTube and believe mm -hmm. it or not, there's teachers, there's countless number of students that'll go watch math videos on YouTube that are, or even on TikTok that are one minute and can explain your whole lesson that you spent 45 minutes on. And the student still wasn't able to get that, uh, you know, the lesson because maybe it wasn't the, the way it was presented. Maybe it's not the way that they learned. So making those connections. And I thought immediately of my friend, uh, Kevin Doherty, who was on the show, who says, you know, we're, 
as teachers, we're learning engineers. Mm. You know, you said facilitators were learning engineers, but this kind of leads me into the next profession that has also come up as AI has created jobs. And I have seen several articles where there are companies out there that will uh, clean up your input so you can get the best out of any AI and they're becoming prompt engineers. And mm -hmm. now you're seeing prompt engineers show up, uh, you know, on a glass door, on LinkedIn, things of that companies are looking for prompt engineers. And like you mentioned, these digital skills that we as teachers can embrace and share with our students for digital literacy is something that can prepare them for, and I always say the future of work, but the future of work is now and yeah. we're seeing it. <laughs> we are seeing this happen right now before our eyes. So as prompt, what is it that you're seeing right now also in the business space as far as prompt engineering? This well, you mentioned it. It's it's already so new. This is kind of an emerging. This is an emerging area, and uh, I use the phrase "the power of the prompt." I say that in a, in a few of my demonstration type videos, because I'll I want to do an over the shoulder look, and I'll type in something that I think is well well worded, and then I get something back that was not my desired output. I'm like, eh. like you know what I realized? I said and used the expression. Um, so-and-so is on fire, um, or like that answer was on fire. Can you give me another one like that? And it, maybe it gives me something like, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh yeah, I said on the, it's not a human, you know, it doesn't have human consciousness yet. And, uh, so it's the power of the prompt. You're absolutely correct. It, it's, it's how we, we train these pieces in, in the standards that, that I try to generate. That's, um, that was part of the framework for as the development of AI tools are to be created. Um, they looked at, and the and I'm not, this is not my area at all, but, but in the, in the whole artificial intelligence science and how they develop these different pieces in order to even provide the proper output, it has to be trained, pre-trained in a way to know what to look for and then how to tokenize it into different areas and then give it the output. So it's all going to be based on like these prompts in a sense and the better in the more direct and sophisticated and detailed you are with your prompt, the better. But here's what's interesting. Because there are so many tools that exist, th th this is, okay, I'm speaking in different fragments here. What I'm hoping the message might be after this particular podcast interview is for us to recognize that when we say AI, AI is ChatGPT, but AI is not only ChatGPT. There are so many different platforms and tools. So how you use ChatGPT in creating a prompt to get your output is going to be different than if you use Jasper or another writing tool, HelloScribe or Writer or Creator uh, or there's so many out there. You There's various nuances for each one. And ChatGPT is going to evolve at some point too. So this is why it's an art and a science for how we learn. You really, tr you have to learn how the tools and platforms operate to know how to be strategic with your input, your prompt, so that you get your desired output. And then as a teacher, our role is going to be to work with students to ensure that the output is in fact what we wanted. And then it becomes another writing. It's a critical thinking skill for us to figure out how could we have changed that question and asked it something differently. And also too, with the prompt, the other thing I think we need to be aware of is we probably don't think about our words enough. Well, actually I know for a fact we do, I don't, I do not think of my, I say something, I write something, I don't think enough of the meaning. The prompts are gonna require us to actually kind of pause and be very strategic in what it is that we're asking. And we'll start to also recognize, are we asking or writing a prompt with a bias? Are we writing something that is a slant, which is then going to create output that generates a bias or something that, and when I say bias, not necessarily even discriminatory, though that very well can be, but the, one of the pieces we don't know, and this is where educators have a right to be very skeptical on these types of tools, the way these data sets, these millions and billions of data sets that have been used to pre-train these tools, we don't actually know where that information derived. 
they refer to it kind of as a black box. The, the information's gone into a black box and then has been used to pre-train, giving us these outputs. We don't know where they're coming from. And so as such, when we write these prompts, we want to be very detailed and, and, and careful to ensure that we're getting exactly what it is we want and teach the skills to know how to go back and keep iterating those prompts. Um, to me, this is a writing. So it's, it's like an outline for an essay. You you do a draft you until you get it the way it's supposed to be correct. And I think a prompt now is going to be a new, it's a new outline. It's a new draft of an, of, a, of an essay for real. Excellent. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's something that I had been seeing, you know, following uh, the AI exchange, you know, there's so many awesome creators, both on the Twitter, Twitter space, and, uh, of course, the TikTok and learning about this and, you know, people like ourselves that are real into the tech and always wanting to be at the forefront. This is important for us too to know because this is information that we can take back and share with our teachers, share with our institutions, wherever the case is, and then uh, be able to work towards that. So I kind of want to add a little bit, like I mentioned to you, uh, starting this semester, obviously, you know, one of the talks that I had with uh, one of my professors, he kind of told us, it's like, look, we know this is out there. Um, there's no way for us to be 100% sure that what you are submitting is completely yours because, I mean, as long as you follow APA format, you have citations, so on and so forth. But he did; they did mention that, like, we are aware. And so if I read something and it kind of just feels a little, like, you know, maybe a little empty or maybe just kind of seeing that this isn't quite right, then we'll kind of have a conversation. You're not going to get into any trouble, but if we need to, I'll just simply ask you, just please make sure that you rewrite everything, you know, in, in accordance to what needs to be um, submitted. So that at least is what I got from my professors here. How about maybe in your institution? Is there something that has been put in place? That, 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 okay, that's a great question. And also a very important reminder too, I'd like to share with all educators uh, too. So specifically to Avila University, no. Um, we are, we are not, uh, we're not there yet. Um, I know within smaller circles, there have been talk about perhaps adopting, uh, some sort of a policy or beginning to craft guidance. I did put in my course syllabus that I acknowledge the fact that these content writing tools exist. And I did write in there. I encourage the use of them. Just understand uh, as best you can, what definitions of plagiarism are, and please cite your sources as best as possible. So um, our university is probably going to be one of many that are just, they, they haven't even had the discussions yet. And again, part of the reason I wanted standards to be there so folks could realize as you craft these policies, it's okay to acknowledge the use of, and, and we we do have an obligation to teach students what is plagiarism, what is not. And when these types of output, whether it's image, video, or writing and such, uh, come out, what, what might be the ethical or the proper thing to do with it. Now, the interesting thing, and, and any teacher, especially K-12, well, I should just say any teacher, excuse me, any educator, I do caution though, just from my own anecdotal experiment, I'll put in quotes, and just enough knowledge of how these AI tools are, are working. There are emerging platforms that claim to be AI content detectors. I mean, use one, I'm a part of the Facebook group and uh, the the designers uh, so far have been very cool about this. I don't think they would feel uh, in any way offended by me using them as an example, but GPT-0 is an example of a tool. And many of you may have heard this in the news. It's been developed by college students that wanted to, to create a tool to help identify what is AI generated content with the mission of just ensuring that we don't just destroy society in our writing. Well, I did, I, 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 I tested the tool a little bit and what I found is the same logic of validity applies to the content detectors as what we're kind of persecuting content, the, the AI tools as being, they're not valid. You know, it could be, it, it could be using sources that are or are not true. We call it hallucination. So are they hallucinating with the information data? GPT zero is kind of doing the very same thing. I took a copy of what I wrote authentically. Uh, matter of fact, it was from the, the introduction of the standards for student learning, and it, it identified my content as fully AI, which I knew was absolutely not true. And then I thought, okay, this is, and I did this in a YouTube video, so you could actually watch me do this in real time. And then I took 
I went to ChatGPT. I asked it to write a 250 word response in a discussion board to a question about blah, 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 blah. Copied and pasted it word for word into chat, uh, into uh, uh, chat or the GPT zero, um, as well as two other tools. The GPT zero found that it was uh, human writing, which I thought was interesting. Everybody saw that it was generated through chat GPT and it, I, it mistakenly identified it as human. Then I went back to chat GPT. Sorry, teachers for sharing this piece here. Then I said very carefully, the power of the prompt rewrite this so it sounds like a high school student wrote this with a grammatical error or two and so that it will pass all content to tell you know i i asked it to be very specific to write it like a human would with mistakes and that also was misidentified as a human had written that prompt at the uh, gpt zero and then i did one more i wasn't satisfied enough i'm like geez it's over three like, let's go find a piece of writing from the 1700s, long before technology, you know, and it mistaken that as being AI content detected. So this is massively important, I think, for this. This goes back to the ethical use of these. We have to be careful. I'm sorry if I'm going to be poignant here. We have to be careful to not be hypocrites now as educators. If we're going to say that students shouldn't be using these tools because they're not accurate and valid anyway, then as educators, we better be careful to not rely on an AI tool to be our determinant of what is AI detected and penalize a student. Because I guarantee there will be ramifications against institutions or teachers when you're talking about potentially failing courses, failing student work, because you're using a tool that is not valid and it's not properly, I'll say diagnosing these materials. What does this mean? Well, I think it continues to go. I'm sorry to keep going back to standards, but I think it just goes back to, we have to almost now go back to where we should have gone from the get-go, which is from the ground level, teach the ethics, teach the responsible use of, teach the principles behind these areas so that we as educators and students better know how to work with and how to utilize these tools and ensure that the emphasis is on ethics and it's on academic honesty. There are consequences. And if a student is guilty of, yes, absolutely, they're, they're, per your institution, there will be certain consequences. But just I caution, please be careful with the AI content detectors. They are as flawed as the other AI tools, which shouldn't surprise us because it's all these AI generated tools. Yeah. It makes sense. Yes, absolutely. I agree with you. I, I know I'm part of a technology, you know, group here in Texas, and I see a lot of CTOs putting in there like, oh my gosh, like, should we close chat GPT or what's going on here? And they put up three uh, plagiarism checkers as well. And so I did my own experiment too. And I typed something in a Google doc in my own words, and it said it was 99% AI. There you go. <laughs> and then I went and just copied something from an a from chat GPT, popped it in there. Same thing. It says like 100% human and it passed all three tests. And I was like, well, th this, this really is not going to do any help. And right, I absolutely right. agree with you. We need to be very cautious with those tools because that can cause a lot of trouble and it can yeah. cause a lot of headaches in our education space. So rather, like you said, it's it, it's good to know the tools yeah. and then the ethics of it and teaching properly. Just make sure that we know about this and it's you know, good practice, best practices, best practice. All right. Well, it's been an amazing conversation and we can definitely do a part two for sure. And I would definitely love to have you back at any time. As you know, any guest on the my EdTech live podcast is definitely has an open invite. So maybe we can definitely have a part sure. two of this conversation as we continue to see this body of work develop and you, the work that you're doing also develop. So I have been uh, putting in into the chat of uh, obviously the link to the video your website, you know, your contact information, but please, you, you know, uh, go ahead and share with our audience right now, those that are watching us live, how it is that they can go ahead and connect with you. Yeah. It's rare for me to sound like a salesman, but I get to, I get to, I guess, put a sales hat on. Um, it, obviously, hopefully folks can kind of see I'm passionate on this topic and I know many of you are too. And if you're interested at all, um, I do have a twice weekly newsletter that's been uh, curating resources uh, on topics related to AI um, and uh, also even wellness. I'm, I'm trying to incorporate more of that too. And it's part of a group that I call Leading Edge Teachers. So if you're interested in the newsletter, uh, it's all free. 
And uh, like I said, I send it out pretty much on Tuesdays and Friday mornings. Uh, you could go to leadingedgeteachers.com. And the next piece that I really want to get toward, though, is the online community. I uh, will save this for a whole nother conversation, but there's so much power behind online community and how folks learn socially and connect with folks. So I also have leadingedgeteachers.community. And uh, we have about nine members right now. This is just off the ground within a few days. Um, and I want to use that as our hub to actually keep track of some of the information, or that's where I'll have some upcoming webinars or training live videos and such. This way, it's all in one area, as opposed to random YouTube videos or newsletters. I want to try to keep everything in a consolidated spot. That's also free too. So leadingedgeteachers.com and leadingedgeteachers.community. Excellent. Well, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for being a guest here and just the just the great insight that you brought. And I'm just really excited because again, the more that we can get this type of information out into the education space, the better, the more informed that we as educators and creators will be, uh, I guess, well-informed and also just learning a little bit to kind of just step back see what we're doing and making sure that we're doing it well and we're doing it ethically and that we're doing it in a way that is going to be positive for our space as well. So thank you so much. But before we go and we wrap up, I always love to end the show with this segment. So here we go. Last three questions. My first question to you, Dr. James, is in the current state of education, this including K-12 and higher ed, what would you say is your current edu kryptonite? Uh, I, it took me a while to learn this. I believe I'm an empath. I shoulder anxiety and frustration and generally feel it, sense it, uh, so much so that it, it almost debilitates me a little bit. Uh, it frustrates me, uh, especially when I was a school administrator, we all know there are policies being handed down to us from so many different directions. And then your job as the administrator of a building is to enforce it, I guess, or implement it. Oh, and half the time I didn't want to agree or didn't agree. And when you feel the frustration, especially in the past few years, when you, you see, you see what our teachers are experiencing and going through, um, it, it can really tear you up. And I know sometimes it's it's really easy to believe it's an us versus them, teachers versus administrators. But I do believe there are a lot more administrators than we think that they really can't sleep at night because they know like this impacts people, this impacts our people and there's nothing I can do about it. And that is the worst. You don't feel like a leader when you look your staff in the eye and say, I'm sorry, I hear you and I can't do anything about it. How, how do you feel like a leader when that happens? So I've learned that that sometimes my empathy could get the best of me. And uh, that is my kryptonite. All right. For sure. Great answer, Dr. James. Thank you so much for being open about that. As I'm sure that there are many others that feel the same way. So thank you so much for voicing that. All right. Question number two. If you could have a billboard with anything on it, what would it be and why? Okay, I prepared for this one. I did. I had to think about this. And I even asked my wife and she said, compliment to you, Fonz. She said, well, that's a hard question. I said, I know, I know. Um, I did prepare this one. It, it, there are, I would just very briefly, there are no coincidences. And I'll let people just kind of go from there. But whether you're religious, spiritual, or neither, I believe there are no coincidences everything happens in life for a purpose. There's something that we're just not in tune on to understand or know. And it, we won't know sometimes till after the fact, but nothing happens by coincidence. And if we live our life knowing that and understanding that, I think we could react to certain situations in a more deliberate, a more strategic, a curious and inquisitive way and understand that even when something may feel negative then, there's, there's a reason, there's a reason what is in tune into it, try to figure it out. And then it may be a year two, 10 later where it's like, oh, that was supposed to happen, wasn't it? And so that's what I, I would go with that. My, my billboard, there are no coincidences in life. 
Love it. Excellent. Great billboard. And like you said, it's open to interpretation for anybody as you drive by and just to get you to think and reflect. And many times we need to slow our brains down a little bit and just think and reflect on those things. So thank you so much for sharing that. All right. And the last question, Dr. James, if this was your podcast today, all right, and I am your guest, what would be one question you'd like to ask me? And this is purposely for you. This is this could be a softball question for sure, because think about this here. And I hope your viewers respect all the work you put in and do here. You know, you 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 feature so many different guests around the space, and it's awesome because you're kind of a coordinator. You know, you're 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 collaborating the collaborators, but you may not get enough emphasis and attention for yourself even. So I, my question will be for for you to get your message out also. In addition to ed tech. I can also sense that you have this belief that says teachers have a voice. Let's amplify it. Let's help them be content creators. Let's help them be educator creators because we have so much to offer and you're trying to do your part by getting that voice out. So for you, I'm curious, your what do you believe is necessary for any person out there listening to take that jump, take that leap and say, I know I can do this. I just, maybe I'm lacking confidence or I'm lacking. What advice do you have for the person out there that wants to, they just haven't made that leap yet to become a content creator in the education space? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the biggest ones that I battled with was comparing myself to others. Don't compare yourself to others. You are you. And again, going along with the no coincidences, you know, what we, where we come from, how we grew up, all of that shapes who we are. And sometimes we compare ourselves to others because we want a little bit of their success. We want something that they're doing and some of that attention and so on. And it's great to look up to people that inspire you and really just get you your creative juices flowing and really kind of help you build courage to start speaking up. So the thing is, don't compare yourself to others. And once I got into this space, don't compare your numbers to others. Oh, yeah. I actually wrote a blog about this. Don't compare your likes, follows, subscribes, or anything, because there's always going to be somebody that's going to be out there that's going to have higher numbers, and then you're going to feel discouraged, like, well, they're at this much, and they're at this much. Uh, I, I belong to a group of educators, and oftentimes they share their stats. I am not there yet, and it doesn't really bother me that I'm not there yet because I feel that the content that I am putting out there is something more, like you said, that connector, that learning facilitator, that coordinator. And for me, that is the biggest uh, win, you know, connecting educators and creators one show at a time. And so I love the fact that as the show has gone on and grown, I have people reaching out to me now to be a guest. And then I listen to their stories and I'm like, absolutely. I want to give you a platform that you may not otherwise have. Or even if you've already done this on bigger platforms, I want to give you my platform to be able to reach out and share your message, share your passion. So don't compare yourself to others and always believe that what you bring is definitely going to make an impact. Because like my friend Al Thomas told me once, you never know you never know who you're going to run into that's going to say that one little thing that can change your trajectory yeah. and just, you know, it's over from there. You're going to just grow and move forward. So absolutely. And that's what I love about this show. Like I said, just amplifying voices. And it just brings me so much joy, as you can see, talking about this, mm -hmm. you know, the storytelling aspect. So thank you so much for that question. Absolutely. I really appreciate it. I want to make sure and you get enough credit. You, this is, this is, you, I mean, you have clearly earned a subscriber and a follower in me, and this is an awesome platform. And I, you, I hope, I wish nothing but success. I know it's going to take off. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And for all our audience members, we had Sherry Fleischer joining us on LinkedIn. We also had Flavia Cristofaloni. I think I hope I pronounced that right. Joining us from Italy as well. And then, of course, to all our audience members that will be catching this on the replay, listening to the podcast as soon as it's up in a couple of hours and so on. Thank you, as always, for making my EdTech life what it is today. I really appreciate you all. Please make sure you go to our website at myedtech.com. 
edtech.life, myedtech.life, where you can check out this episode and the other 169 amazing episodes from educators and creators around the world, where you can go ahead and take a little bit of advice that they share, sprinkle it onto what you are already doing great. Also, if you love to support our mission of connecting educators and creators one show at a time, you can go ahead and visit our merch store or you can go ahead and click on the Become Awesome tab where you can go ahead and, um, you know, either buy us some coffee or you can go ahead and subscribe. And, you know, it's a way to connect other educators and everything that is, uh, you know, collected always goes back to the show but we do have some great merch we have some great designs go check out the shop conference season is around the corner so if you need some great conference wear something comfortable and you want to support the show visit our store thank you as always and again my friends until next time don't forget stay techie